Hey, Jerry Walker, class of 93. Here with the Left Coast Pirates. You guys doing a great job. We appreciate what y'all doing out there. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead, guarded by Ochefu, gets the step into the lane, goes to the bucket, layup, rolls around and in, and a foul! Whitehead ties the game! Pow! From Trenton! Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes! Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate, from San Diego, California, he is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkaharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. How you doing today, Mikey? Good morning, Tommy. What do you got for me today? Mike, I'm in my glory. You know, like I've said time and time again, I started Seton Hall in 92, 93, and we're bringing on another guest from that team. It's like I'm collecting them all, man. I was just about to say, when are you not in your glory if I say early 90s, Seton Hall basketball? It was a good time, Mike. We were winning. We were moving far into the tournament, man. It was great times. And what better way to celebrate that time period than bringing in Brian Caver to the podcast. So, so we've almost gotten the entire starting five now, right? You had Jerry, you got Arturis, uh, you got Brian now. We got a couple more pieces of the puzzle and we're good to go. We got to get Luther and we got to get Terry, but Brian's going to be an exciting guest. As I always say, I'm so excited. Here's, here's why I get excited when you say Brian Kaver and you talk about that specific team and the glory days and the run. He's your point guard. The point guard runs the show. The point guard knows kind of all the intricacies of what's going on in the game, the strategy, you know, what coach wants them to execute. So it's going to be really interesting to see how Brian kind of remembers some of those games and specifically how kind of PJ kind of ran the show in relation to him and the dynamic between the two of them. As always, I'm excited. Well, without further ado. He won back-to-back NJSIAA Parochial A State Championships at the old McCorston Catholic High School in Hamilton Township, New Jersey. Played for Seton Hall University from 1990 to 1994. Tied for 54th on the all-time scoring list, 12th on the all-time assist list, 14th on the all-time steals list, and was an assistant coach after his playing days at Trenton High from 2010 to 2015. Please welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, Brian Caver. Brian, how are you today? I'm wonderful, man. I'm glad to be here, man. I'm excited. Uh, my, my new thing is asking all the guests, like, what the, how do you feel about that intro? Man? It's just over the, the intro is crazy. I almost, I almost put my sneakers back. <laughs> That's what Rebus yeah. says. Rebus says, I'm ready to play. Let's go. I'm ready to play now. Jeez. <laughs> all right. Well, Brian, thank you. Thank you for joining the show again. I appreciate it. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, man. All right. Uh, before we get started, happy belated birthday. I noticed the other day on Facebook, it, right? Man. Last week, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to date you. I, I know. I feel like we're getting Don't old. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> the last, the last time I said that. we're getting old, Sean got really mad at us. He got really <laughs> mad. Right. 
All right, so with everything surrounding the pandemic and everything, how'd you get to celebrate? Did you do a Zoom call? Well, I did a Zoom call with my families. Uh, my son is in Texas. Uh, my daughters are here um, and, you know, my wife and stuff. Uh, we did a Zoom call. Then we did a little cookout, just something intimate, you know, just for, you know, a couple of family members, just hung out, laughed a little bit, you know, moved on. It, it doesn't matter much when you get, you know, you start getting up there, you just want to enjoy the quiet. I don't know. I think Brian's starting to look like me. We got the same amount of gray in our beards yeah, here, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. This, this is why I don't grow it out. This is why I don't grow it out. Uh, so yeah, all, I anymore. All, all kidding aside, Brian, is everybody safe and healthy with everything that's going on? Everyone is safe and healthy. Um, early on in the pandemic, I lost a couple of family members, uh, two cousins. But uh, beyond that, you know, everyone is pretty safe and kind of still, you know, adhering to those guidelines. You know, trying to just keep that social distance in as much as possible and you know, keeping our face covered when we're out. So. Well, our condolences for your loss there, Brian. It, it's real sad sure. when we hear this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it, it hits home when you start getting the, the personal stories that affected uh, the ones that we know. All right. We've also been opening our show recently trying to be respectful to what's going on uh, with the racial inequality that's that's facing our, our country right now. I personally mm -hmm. follow you on Facebook. And what caught my attention the other day was a post to the Seton Hall Pirates uh, basketball group. And in your post, you drew attention to a song about encouragement uh, and that was actually co-written by yourself. So can you take a moment and tell the audience about the message behind that song and how it relates to what we're going through? Well, well, it, it, it's kind of twofold. It, it kind of fit the, uh, so I managed a group called uh, Devoted. They're a gospel group from the trend. I've known them maybe for 30 years. Uh, so we co-wrote this song. The, the first premise is one of the members of the group, there were five members. One of the members died, passed away on Christmas, this past Christmas. Just unexpectedly, he just passed away. You know, he had, a, you know, some heart, a heart a heart attack and just passed away. So that was just kind of our way of kind of paying tribute to him at first, which is uh, Reese Johnson. And then, you know, so in January, as we started to release the song, two months later, the pandemic hits. And then it just, it was just kind of really, the song was just really to encourage us, encourage the, his family, friends, those, who, you know, but then it kind of took a turn and it was just kind of really poignant for what was going on in the country at the time with this pandemic and people losing people. Suddenly, we just don't know what's going on. We don't know what to do. So the song was just kind of fitting, just encouraging people to just, you know, God will give them the strength to kind of endure what we're dealing with. And it's kind of helped us and it's helped some other people as well, as well as his family. You know, without trying to take any less uh, importance from that message and what's going on in the world, we're going to take a detour here and move into your career as a basketball player. Now, for the last two years, Seton Hall fans have heard one phrase over and over, and that's what Trenton makes the world takes. But 30 plus <laughs> years ago, Brian, you were lighting up the Trenton era yourself. Like right. I mentioned during the intro. You went to McCorston Catholic High School, which now is Trenton Catholic Academy, if I'm not mistaken. Back-to-back yes. -back parochial A state championships, first-team All-State pick, player of the year in Mercer County, and McDonald's mm -hmm. All-American. Now, being in a McDonald's All-American is quite an honor coming out of high school, and those rosters back then were still... Stacked. I mean, looking yeah. at the East-West game, you could see names of players who were going on to own college basketball for the next few years. Eric mm -hmm. Montross, 
Ed O'Bannon, Grand Hill, just to name a few. I mean, we can keep going with those names. Yeah, Penny Hardaway, all those guys. Uh, Luther Wright, a former teammate yeah. of yours. But you know what caught our attention was we didn't see your name listed in that game. Did you have an injury or something that prevented you to play that game? Did, didn't have an injury. So it's a little different now back then. What, what transpired was you get your letter from the McDonald's All-American team and they tell you, that you're a McDonald's All-American selection, which is a great honor in itself to even be mentioned. But what happened in those days where they were, as they formulated teams, New York was really thriving, like with your Khalid Reeves and Adrian Audrey's and Derek Phelps. So they only took two players from New Jersey at the time. So I was ranked number three in, the, in, in New Jersey behind Luther Wright, who was my former teammate, but also Pat Sullivan, who played AAU with me on the Demons. So they took those two players, and then they took nine players from New York at the time. Jamal Mashburn was on that. So it was a bunch of those guys. So I felt a little slighted, but, you know, it was still an honor to be mentioned in that. I would have loved to have been able to play in that game. Um, so, you know, you could put a little mad face on the screen, <laughs> you know, if I could. But, uh, no, it was just a, a tremendous honor. But, like you said, talent level was just incredible. Rodney Rogers played for the East. It was just all those guys went on to play in the NBA, which was, you know, phenomenal. Now, now, far be it for me to disparage a former pirate, but I'm thinking they probably needed some size when they brought Luther into the game because, <laughs> you know, my high school played against Luther's high school, and he was such an imposing figure to look at. I mean, you were told, oh, Elizabeth High School's got this seven foot two kid, but. That doesn't describe Luther in the least bit. Man. Until you see him in person, absolutely. absolutely. Oh, I mean, um, Tommy, there was enough height in that game already. Oh, Eric Montross, Sean oh, Bradley. Yeah. Come on, get yes, Brian I'm in the game. I'm just trying to get, get Brian, Brian out here, man. Come oh, on now. <laughs> well, but in, in seriousness, bringing it back. Back then, I mean, you're 17, 18 years old. How frustrating was it that you didn't get to showcase your talents in a game of that magnitude with players like that? You want to do that, um, but like you said, I was 17, so I just found somewhere else. Like we just, you want you move on because you're not thinking about it because you're kind of in the moment. And then you know, following that, I was able, was fortunate enough to go play in the uh, Olympic Festival that that July, which was incredible as well. Mike must have sent you the questions because that's the next thing we want to talk about here. <laughs> So you were selected for the 1990 Olympic Sports Festival, and you came home with the bronze, and the legendary Pete Carroll was the coach of that team. What was yeah. the experience like getting to play for a guy like that? Uh, one, it was just because I'm from the, you know, the Princeton area, you kind of all you heard about was Pete Carroll and his legendary, you know, just his passion and his, his knowledge of the game. That's the first thing that pops out to you is just how much he knows and how much he recognizes and, be, and, and being able to kind of uh, identify all your different talents on the team. But it also frustrated him because that was actually the, the, the final team that he said he would never, ever coach an all-star team. <laughs> <after that. laughs> because he just he couldn't stand it because they weren't, you know, he's used to guys kind of being team players. I had Michael Edwards on the team. guys just a, catch and go guy, you know, guys, guys are really just trying to get numbers. And, you know, I was, I was fortunate enough and, and I, I was flattered that he uh, said to me that, you know, just continue to improve. You're a great, you were a great uh, player to coach. You're very coachable. You listen. And uh, so I was proud that, you know, I was able to just take in what he was giving me and, and, and try to apply what he was teaching. Me. You weren't running any backdoor cuts is what you're trying to say? Oh, well, you, 
He wanted to run them, but that's not what's happening. <laughs> that's it. Guys, you swing it, and that's it. <laughs> you, you know, not to disparage the Princeton teams, but I think he was shocked with the amount of talent he had on his team. Sometimes right, you right. got to run that back door when you don't got the talent, man. Instead of a backdoor cut, that was a backdoor alley-oop. <laughs> <laughs> he probably hadn't seen a dunk at Princeton in about 15 years. But, but you mentioned some of your teammates. Who else played with you on that squad? Uh, Michael Smith from Providence, Donnell Lumpkin from Rutgers. Oh my God, it's been so long ago. Jeez, I had to look at the picture. Like, but it's just, <laughs> it was just a great. It was just crazy. Like I'm getting old. Like, I can't. I can't remember. I played so many guys. Like, jeez, oh man. But it was just a really an incredible experience. One because we were on the University of Minneapolis campus, and uh, just the other players to see that you read. See, back then we didn't have social media, so you get to see those guys that you don't normally see in person you just read about them in like street smith so you had the shacks you had the you know, shaquille o'neal was there penny was there jr Ryder, um all these different guys grant hill jimmy jackson oh so like it was loaded it was it was loaded and it was some incredible talent all right brian so before we go into your college days you also got to play one more time for the u.s uh, national team in the summer of mm -hmm. 1991 uh, not only were a member of the u.s junior national team that won the gold in Canada, but you were voted most outstanding player for the tournament as well. So tell mm -hmm. me about that team and where do those achievements rank for you in your playing career? Well, that, that's one of, you know, one of the greatest accolades I could, uh, you know, one, it gave us the opportunity to kind of represent the United States. So they brought maybe 30 players into Florida uh, that summer. Krzyzewski was there. Our coach, Lon Cooper, was there, who coached the University of Florida and in the NBA. And again, like you had, the best 19-year-old under in the country that's, that, was, that was playing college basketball at the time. You know, Vin Baker, Lance Miller was one of the guys, Wesley Persons, Cherokee Parks, Antonio Lang. I mean, we were pretty loaded going into Canada. Um, so it definitely ranks as one of my most memorable moments in, athletic, in my whole athletic career. So. Well, you guys kind of ran right through that. You were like 8-0, if I'm not mistaken, during that tournament? We were 8-0, but we didn't run through it. We had, you know, some of those teams were – see, the difference between the United States and over there, we played amateur. We considered – so a lot of those guys, young, they played pro. So, you know, like Italy had Greg Wolf. Like, they were up 20 in the final against us going into the half. Italy was going up uh, – they were up 20. Uh, Argentina was really, really good. Um, so there were some really – great teams from different countries, you know, that gave us, you know, the Japan, like we, we ran away with some games, but getting down to that final, that Argentina, playing against that, that Italy in the finals, it was pretty tough. We had to kind of really battle, um, but we were fortunate enough to have some really good players. On the All right, team. Brian, one more, one more question before we get to Seton Hall stuff. So you yeah. dominate or not dominate, but you win the gold in 91 as, you know, the being part of the national team and you're most outstanding player. You got to be thinking there's a shot to get invited back in 1992 to represent the team in the Olympics, right? Tom's laughing already. Like, no, like that's <laughs> one of the things. So this is one of those moments that, you know, you hate to talk about, but it's a really interesting story to people when they finally hear it. So, like you said, you know, we played well in the June Nationals. It's 1991. The Olympics is 92. You know, you're thinking, I'm thinking, 92, I'm going to the Olympics. Like, you know, I'm going to at least get a trial, like a trial at the trials or whatever. And what do you know? We get the letter like, okay, you know, you guys had a great summer from USA Basketball. 
Let's look forward to the 92 Olympics, and then you get the dream team one. <laughs> you know, we're going to go in a different direction. <laughs> we're going to take dream team one. So I can't argue with Michael Jordan, Charles Barkley, David Robson. Like, how, do you, how do you argue with that? Uh, so, I mean, it's unfortunate, but it was fortunate for the, you know, Mike to see those guys uh, go on and win the gold. I understood as well. Because I think we struggled uh, the previous years in the Olympics mm-hmm. because of that one point that I mentioned in the junior nationals. Those guys played pro. So you got like Sabonis and all those guys go back to their country. And now they're playing, representing their country, playing these amateurs. So Tom wants you to blame John Thompson and, and not the American <laughs> uh, the U.S. No. Olympic Committee. I can't. <laughs> yeah, I wish, right? I wish I could, but, you know, how do you argue with that? All right, so so let's bring it back for a moment, Brian. At the top of the podcast, I was joking around with Zoom birthday calls, but could you imagine if you had to go on virtual campus recruiting today like some of the young guys have to do with everything going on with the pandemic? I mean, how how could you do that? I just, I don't know. And and then, like, to not be able to sit and watch a practice or interact with the players that way, it's just, because those are the things that are, are most important. Like, I think sometimes... The program will sell itself because you watch them on television and things like that. But the behind the scenes part is really what draws you to a school, you know, seeing how the players interact, what they do when they're not on the court and things like that. So I just couldn't imagine not being able to go on a campus, you know, and see the dorms and see how the players, uh, what the cafeteria looks like and, you know, what life is outside of the gym. Maybe that works better for Seton Hall because you don't want to see what that cafeteria <laughs> used to look like. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I tell you, like, even on my visit, I still remember my visit. You know, it wasn't like most of the people they put you in the hotels and things like that. You know, PJ was just a little different. He just, I had to go in the room with a player. I was in with Terry. He came back and got me in the morning for a five in the morning workout. So it wasn't nothing hidden. Like, and I think that's what kind of really drew me to them. Because not only that, you know, I had a conversation with Luther, an opportunity for Jersey guys to stay at home, John Leahy, but it was just, he didn't really try to overwhelm me with all these, you know, great, here's an opportunity for us to be able to win the Big East. This is what campus life is like. This is what it's like for me to yell at you, wake you up at five in the morning, get you to run. Guys don't want to get up and go. With you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So that, that, that was really the difference maker. So they, they didn't dress it up. But when you went to, right. I'm assuming Seton Hall wasn't your only campus visit. So where else did you take official visits to and who else was recruiting you the hardest? Uh, like Providence, Rick Barnes was really recruiting me hard. Providence uh, was recruiting me hard. Syracuse, I actually committed to Syracuse verbally. Me and Jamal Mashburn were on campus together. Tom's going to stop the interview right now. Tom's going to stop the interview. I did. He he hates Syracuse. (laughs) Hates Syracuse. I understand why. (laughs) But no, I actually, I verbally committed to them, and then I kind of changed my mind. I backed out because it was just between Seton Hall and Syracuse. And and I think that was the difference, though, Tom. Like, you know, Syracuse puts you in a nice hotel. You know, they show you all the, you know, Derek Coleman was getting ready to be drafted number one. You know, I'm there with probably – Jamal Mashburn is my recruit mate on the visit. So it's like, you know, it was the first weekend of visits. So it was crazy. So. See, I love this question because it always brings up like the what ifs. Could you imagine what that Syracuse team would have been like with both Caver 
and Mashburn coming in as freshmen. Oh, my, my head spinning. I mean, that would have been that would have been one nasty team. Adrian Adrian Autry wanted his shots. Come on, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brian, your time at Seton Hall, that was my heyday. You know, we're, we're about the same age. I believe you're a year older than me. And as we were looking back at your Seton Hall career, you were part of an inordinate amount of big moments and great rivalries that defined that old Big East. I mean, just looking at this list, it takes me back to those days, and it just, I'm, I'm, I'm already excited. You're talking about getting your sneakers on. I'm getting my sneakers on, man. <laughs> But we're going to go over some of these. We grouped some of these great moments together. We're going to take a stroll down memory lane. And one of the first topics we want to talk about is some big game winners and buzzer beaters. Now, if you listen to our intro, you hear one of those buzzer beaters that you passed off to the hair. It's a camera to the hair. It's good. But we're going to go through these and we're going to, we're going to talk about your experiences. In 91, during the Big East tournament, Oliver Taylor had one of those out-of-body experiences where not only he had one game winner, he had two against Pitt and Villanova. Now, describe the confidence that the team was building after those two games. For one, just playing underneath like Oliver Taylor as the senior leader and as the agent, just going into the Big East. They just We just really felt like we were starting to really – gel anyway uh we had i think we had maybe ran off maybe six or seven games in a row before the big east uh tournament and just going into that but those two games just watching you know we can say it now like even going into the huddle we just knew like we've always like practicing with oliver taylor i always knew it's a building and the things that he kind of just sacrificed for the team but to just watch him in the garden and not like it was almost like Put it in my hand and get out of the way. It was like one of those things. <laughs> no, really. But it wasn't like, it wasn't a shock to us that he would do that. But it was just so overwhelming that in the moment for him to just be like, you could see him like when he gets it, he just looks at the clock like nobody else is getting this. Both games, he did that. Like he the one, the last game, that, that last game, he just kind of walked up. We had like 13 seconds. He was just like, we're not calling anything flat. Like get out of the way. Like I'm going. But it just really kind of just propelled us into the tournament, and we made a hell of a run in the tournament. So, Did it make the experience that much more euphoric because it was the Garden? We always like asking players, tell me about the Mecca. Man, it's, it's nothing like playing in the Garden, just with all the history of all the players. You got to remember, that's when Michael Jordan was kind of going off in the Garden, in the Garden around that time. And, uh, you know, you got just the, the, the nostalgia, excuse me, the nostalgia of just being in New York, the biggest is at the height of its, you know, you got Billy Owens, and you got Lonzo Mourning, uh, Matumbo, and Malik Sealy, all these different, Eric Murdoch, and all these different guys that, that, that has come through there. And just to be in the garden and have an opportunity to be on that floor is just, it's unreal. It's unreal. You feel like you almost can't miss him. I, just, I see what Michael Jordan is saying. Like, he's just kind of, you just want to play your best in the Now let's stick with Oliver Taylor for a moment here. You ended up becoming an ex-star point guard in a long list of Seton Hall floor generals. And it mm-hmm. seemed like for a while in, in our great heyday, it was just the baton was passed down from one guy to the next. What kind of teammate was he? 
And what kind of influence did Taylor have on your career? He had a huge influence because, you know, um, when you come in as a freshman, you kind of really just, you, you want to try to make an uh, immediate impact. You want to kind of just always show what you're doing. He just kind of always had those conversations about kind of just slowing it down, allowing it to come to you. You know, high school is different uh, from college and professional is different from college. So I was just fortunate enough to, to have him and Dow Chris, who was a, a, ahead of me, like, you know, to watch Dow Chris work ethic, to watch Oliver's work ethic, how he approached, you know, film, you know. So the guards, we would sit together and, you know, Oliver would have those conversations with me, like, yeah, Brian, there are moments when you just want to go, but you got to sometimes think about who you're playing with. You got guys that are getting ready to, to play pro. Anthony Avent was going to get drafted. So sometimes you got to kind of make sure that these guys are engaged in the game. It was more of a mental approach that he kind of really taught me, you know, because we were two different type of guards. I was a little taller, a lot more athletic. He was really skilled and, and, and really solid at making the, the right decisions. So I learned so much from him in that aspect. All right, so we're going to fast forward to buzzer beater number two. We're going to go to February 26th, 1992. Uh, buzzer Ooh. beater versus Georgetown. It's a 73-71 to 71 OT victory at the Meadowlands. Georgetown came in ranked 18th. Uh, Irvin Church, a freshman from Georgetown, hits a three-pointer to tie it with about five and a half seconds to play. And then following a timeout, you took the inbounds pass, drove the length of the floor, laid in at the buzzer. Where does that shot rank in terms of biggest shots in your career? That's probably the biggest shot in my career, that, without question. That was the first time that I, in a huddle, where, where PJ kind of said, well, listen, you need to make something happen. That was the first time that he kind of, gave me that kind of responsibility. I was only a sophomore, but he put that responsibility. You know, he, he told me to, you know, get as close as you can and try to get a decent shot. Um, no, play. no, no plays. He was like, Brian, this is all you. This is it. This is what we have. Try to get to where you can get to and get a shot. So, you know. But, but, but there's Jerry Walker. There's Terry DeHair. And now he's like, Brian, the ball is yours. Well, I think he always knew my ability to be able to create my own shot. Because even when the shot clock would run down, you would notice we were probably running flat at the time where, you know, gave me an opportunity to kind of go one-on-one. -on -one. So I just think that he just realized, you know, if you put it in my hand, just give me an opportunity to kind of go. So it was really nothing. It was just kind of let me catch the ball on the run. So I just kind of just looped around and caught it on the run. I knew that the really wouldn't foul uh, because it was tied. And it was a double overtime game. So, you know, they would rather go into a triple overtime if they had to. Uh, so it was just kind of awareness. Just caught it on the run, got to half court, looked up. I said, wait a minute, I got a little longer than a little over two seconds. I think I could take two or three more dribbles. I took two dribbles, and there you have it. On Go top of that, you, you hit that shot in front of the home crowd of 17,000-plus, yeah. and they're rushing the court. The, the articles are like they're knocking over tables to start yes. the celebration. <laughs> How much sweeter is it to hit a shot like that on your home floor versus possibly being in the uh, the opponent's arena. Like, Greg Tynes is like, I like being the the enemy. I love playing on the road, but, I mean, I got to think hitting a game winner like that in front of your home fans makes it that much sweeter. And against Georgetown. We hate Georgetown. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, it was just crazy because Lonzo Morning was doing a lot of yapping, and then Jerry stayed at it. So it was just, it was just sweet that we could just hit that, hit that shot, that buzzer go off, and we raise our hands, and, you know, everyone starts grabbing each other. That was that was incredible, like, to experience people rushing the court. And, you know, it was scary, too, because, every, you know, you look at the teammates. <laughs> like, yeah, right, right. But it, it was cool. It was definitely, it goes down as, you know, my number one experience. 
So Alonzo fouls out early in overtime. If he's not out of the game and manning the middle, does that whole sequence play out differently in your head? Yeah, it was just it was just fitting that when he fouled out, he definitely would have challenged the shot. It definitely would have been a different. You know, I may still I would still made it. As we're gonna say still made it. He would have definitely challenged. <laughs> and uh, but the funny part was when he fouled out, we had our small squad in. So it was maybe me, Terry, I think uh, Arturis, maybe Jerry, and maybe Gordon Winchester. In. So we were small at the time. So when he found out, he got, you know, we huddled at the free throw line. He kind of bust through our, <laughs> through our <laughs> he kind of bust through our huddle like he was pissed off. In the <laughs> so walk the Alonzo <laughs> angry? No, I don't see it. I can't yeah, see right. that. Man. Man's got a scowl permanently yeah. tattooed on his face. Yeah, yeah it's pretty funny. Well, later on that year, in the first round of the NCAA tournament, we go up against LaSalle. And this one's got a little personal feel for me because I remember walking into my senior Spanish class and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there was this LaSalle pendant up on the wall. And I look at the teacher, I go, what's that? He goes, that's that's my team. That's going to be your team this coming year because he knew I was going to Hall next the following year. But he spoke too soon. Because Terry DeHair ends up with a jumper from a corner to win it. Brian, during the game, he had 13 points, 6 assists. Terry scored a team high of 24. But that LaSalle team was coming strong. Randy Woods, who averaged 27 points a game for them that season, came down and scored 33 for them. They weren't leaving without a fight. Now... I don't want to bring it up, Brian, but you drew that defensive assignment in that first half. And and if I'm not mistaken, he put up 21. So how impressive of an offensive show did he put on that game? Listen, that dude was probably one of my toughest covers ever. And I know Randy. Like, I know him. He was just a juggernaut. Like, never, he never sat still. Like, he played off the ball sometimes. He played with the ball. But he got up as many shots as he could. I mean, and he did it from all over the floor. Every play was for him. That's what that was going to be that night. So sometimes you draw guys like that, and he just got it going. He wanted them to win. He didn't come there to lose. And uh, he definitely was one of my toughest covers, and he gave it to me. He gave it to me. You know, I can say it now. LaSalle definitely didn't just come and be happy about being in the NCAA tournament. You know, Seton Hall eventually found itself with the ball and the tie game with 46 seconds left to play. They whittled the time down to about 10 seconds before you passed it over down to Terry, who had come free off of a screen set by Gordon Winchester. And then Mm -hmm. Terry just drained an 18-footer, and we escaped with that victory. Now, PJ didn't call a timeout after LaSalle had tied the game. What was going through your mind as that clock started bleeding down? We kind of knew kind of what we wanted to do. So most of the time in, in games, in close games like that, when you, if another team calls a timeout with like a minute or two go, we kind of go over some of the you know, situations that we had. Like if we had the ball with, you know, it was, clock, I think it was 40 seconds, 45 seconds at the time, something like that. So we knew that we had plenty of time. We had two timeouts to go. If we get in this situation, we're not going to waste the timeout. We already know what we want to do. Well, we know who we want to go to. Terry kind of had it going. That's not open. We had options off of that. So, you know, that's the one thing that uh, I, I will attribute to being at Seton Hall. We were always really prepared. Bruce Hamburger was incredible with preparing us for scouting report. And, uh, you know, we used, to, we used to tease him a lot, but 
you know, him, Coach Brown, and Coach Tom, they kind of always had us prepared. So we were prepared for in-game situations. That's what I mean. Like, even with Oliver Teller, like, knew what was going on prepared. So, you know, we just knew that we were going to get a good shot. We were going to run our set all the way through and get a good shot. And, you know, Terry, you know, he was like, if, if it's open, I'm, I'm going to knock it down. So I said, all right, you know, we'll just make sure we get it to you. Let's go. Just like Here. butter on Terry. Terry, just like butter. Terry Terry could go three, four hundred and be like, I'm going to make the next one. Just, <laughs> just, give, just give it to me. <laughs> and the good thing was Terry didn't go three, four hundred too many times there. Nah, but he was just that kind. He was confident. So. Brian, you talked about running your set. So if my eyes didn't deceive me going back and watching that game, it looked like you went to that uh, typical – double stack set and you mentioned that that was a uh, you know coach hamburger had good strategy i they ran that same set multiple times at the end of the 89 championship game was that really the go-to play for pj down the stretch kind of not like his go-to but it's it's the option off of our our break set um so our break set we just kind of kick it ahead we can get a double screen for terry and then a follow-up screen for our tours coming off and then we can go into our blue set which kind of allows Terry to utilize a single screen on one side and a double screen on the other side. So when you got players like a Terry DeHere or a John Morton like that, it's really difficult to cover a guy if he has an option coming off a single or double. Even if you get that big, this, you know, to kind of hedge out and switch off, Terry will be able to go by that guy, you know, with no problems. So. All right, Brian, so let's transition away from uh, game winners and buzzer beaters, and let's move into our second topic. We want to talk about some of the historical streaks that you were a part of. First one being okay. beating Syracuse and breaking that 23-game losing streak. Let me set the stage again. February 11th, 1992, Seton Hall 86, Syracuse 76. The Pirates are ranked 25th. Cuse comes ranked 10th. The Pirates had dropped 23 straight to the Orange Men, dating all the way back to 1981 17,584 fans turn out to witness the streak come to an end and the turning point is a scramble for a loose ball in which you kind of corral it get the pass over to John Leahy with two seconds to go on the shot clock he bangs in the three gets fouled completes the four-point play and puts the hall up by nine with just under five to play I mean you guys at that point probably knew that you had it but you had just played them 10 days prior and lost by only three at the dome. And we spoke mm-hmm. to Jerry Walker, man. And when, when Jerry has something that he's proud of, he doesn't yes, stop sir. talking about, right? <laughs> yes, he sir. was just, yes, he sir. was just, he was yapping. And he's like, man, he's like, we beat Syracuse. That's on my resume. The 89 team lost them three times in the same season. Yeah. Yeah. We talk about that all the time. How important was that for you guys to go out and that streak and kind of put that on your, on your resume? I mean, that was incredible. And losing to them in the carrier dome by three, is, it was just kind of like that that punch. In it, like, we had an opportunity to do something special, but we got them again. And to, let, let's get them when they come to us. We, whatever we have to do, we're going to outscrap them. They're not going to just lay down. And you, and you, for someone to say I played at Seton Hall and not know that they've never beaten Syracuse, they'd be lying. We knew every time we played them that we never beat them. So we knew that at some point we're gonna this thing is gonna stop and we're gonna change things. So after that loss by three, uh, we kind of went. That was our focus. Like we just kind of went in, saying we got a couple games in between us, but when we get them at home, we knew once we got them back at home, we were gonna put it on. 
And that was our mission. We're just saying we're not losing this. And like you said, that loose ball, I remember it. And and John was just, I could see John's eyes now when I swung it to him. He was like, oh, I can't wait to let this go. (laughs) (laughs) You you know, I don't know if this one was sweeter or the 30-point drubbing that you gave them the following year. And if I'm not mistaken, we were up 27, and John Leahy hit another three to end that. Yeah, to end it. Yeah, he did. He did. John's like, give me that ball. I'm throwing up another three. John was shooting 57% that year from three. I think he wanted every every shot behind the line. Every shot he could get. Yeah. Well, now we're going to look at a different kind of streak that we act that actually would start the year after a win that you were part of. February 26, 1994, the last win at Nova for 26 years. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's what we said. (laughs) They're grown men that didn't know that we beat Nova at Nova at points. You scored 21 points in that game. You held Villanova star Kerry Kittles to 15 on the other, and Kerry Kittles was a bad man during those days. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And the Pirates walked out of John DuPont Pavilion with a 70-59 to win. Now, you were nearly perfect in that game, hitting four of six three-pointers in the second half. You grabbed eight rebounds. But what is lost in that story is the importance of that game during that season. You guys faced a must-win. You were 13-11 and 6-10 and in the Big East. Mm-hmm. Nova was riding a big seven-game winning streak into that game. And the Wildcats had already beaten us at the Meadowlands thanks to 25 points from that man, Kerry Kittles. How mm-hmm. did that victory get the season turned around for your group? Well, I think it just won. It was a road win um, against a team, like you said, that kind of really handed it to us at home. Um, and they were they were on a, you know, they were riding high on a win streak. Um, so I just really think that it kind of made us ultra focused. Um, one, we wanted to, you know, you still, you, you kind of understand as the seniors, like Arturis and myself, John and, and those guys down means we kind of understand what tournament looks like. So, you know, we're saying this is a must win for us. You know what I mean? This is a must win. Um, so that's kind of what our mindset was as the leaders of the team. Um, like you said, I did, I drew the challenge of having to guard Kittles. Uh, I was fortunate enough, uh, at the time they had, uh, Jonathan Hayes had got in some trouble uh, or something. They had some things going on. So it kind of moved Kittles to the to the one spot, which is a different feel for him. And it's easier to guard him from the one spot than rather having to guard him from him coming off screens. I can, I can play off screens and things like that, but it's easier to manage a player, guard him off, you know, with him having the ball. I can get better help that way. Um, and he was kind of setting, setting the tone. So, but that was, it was incredible. Um, I did, I, I played well. Um, I, that's probably one of my better games, um, but it just kind of it, it it made us ultra focused going into the remainder of the season and, and kind of getting us some, some pivotal wins and putting us in a space where we needed to be after that. Now, did you ever think you'd be reading all these flashback articles that went back 26 years about how you led the team to victory at that point? I mean, it's almost like it was like a broken record for years on end hearing that over and over. We haven't won at Nova. I I, I couldn't believe that it it had been that long. I couldn't believe it. Like, with all those great teams that Seton Hall had and all those players that came after us, it was just... 
it was mind blowing. And I was getting interviewed about it. I'm sitting here like, why are they calling me about this game? And I'm like, and then when you start hearing about it, you're like, wait a minute, this is crazy. We're going to move on uh, to our third topic of groupings. And you already kind of alluded to it. Uh, the rivalries against Georgetown and Syracuse. Yeah. And I, I'm going to throw St. John's into the mix as well. Absolutely. You play, absolutely. You, you play those three teams 30 times over the four years that you were there. That's basically almost 25% of your college career is facing off against these three teams. And when you played them in those 30 games, they were ranked 22 out of those total matchups. And your record during those 30 games, 15 and 15. Tom likes to say it's not a rivalry unless you know each side of the rivalry is coming home with some victories to make the other team a little bit bitter and make you want to come yeah. back and win the next one. And from 1990 to 1993, in the standings, the top three teams in the Big East were always represented by one of those four schools. It's pretty crazy wow. stuff right there, right? So wow. what were some of the most fierce competitors that you remember from that rivalry? Ooh, wow. I mean, it's, that's Joey Brown from Georgetown, man. That little dude, man. <laughs> he was, that dude was a pit bull, man. And we're friends now on Facebook, which is incredible. Um, he, you know, I, I give him tips with his son and playing the point and things like that. Joey Brown, Malik Sealy. You can't leave out Morning in Matumbo, uh, Churchwell, uh, Villanova, Kerry Kittles. Oh, my God, so many. Jesus Christ. I mean, like even Pitt, uh, but St. John's, you got Lee, Lee Green, you know, he passed away from the coronavirus this year mm -hmm. um, from St. John's. Um, Lamont Middleton. <laughs> them dudes are just we just I mean the Big East is just so competitive I mean even if, like we talk about like the teams that were ranked but you know if you caught a you know a downs like Boston College like Bill Curley and them guys and Malcolm Huckabee those guys were fierce you know competitors man they, they were just they wanted to beat you every team University of Pitt Sean Miller I got to play against Brian Shorter come on I get the list goes on Tom, Tom's going to probably make fun of me right now because uh, I had not gotten to Seton Hall yet as a freshman. So I was actually a St. John's fan back in the day, and Malik Sealy was my what? guy. Yeah. I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. I'm still Mike said Johnny come better. lately, man. I didn't you know don't get it, yet. Man. I'm sorry. What do you want me to do? I'm a, I'm a class of uh, 01, so I got there in 97. There so. Uh, but I, and luckily, I grew up in Maplewood, uh, Brian. So I was right. walking into Walsh Gym in 87 to watch Mark yeah, Bryan yeah. play. So. <laughs> But, but you mentioned Malik Sealy. Malik Sealy was a quiet guy from what I remember, but his yeah. numbers, he was right behind Chris Mullen on their all-time scoring list. Talk about Malik. I know he passed on uh, later in life due to, a, I think it was a car accident, but talk, talk about Malik and how dominant he was in the biggest. I mean, he was one of those guys, man. Like, I knew I knew Malik from high school as well, going to, like, five-star and things like that, Nike All-American camp. But he was just, like, a quiet assassin. You, you get what I'm saying? Like, he just – he wasn't a, much of a talker. He didn't really do a lot of talking. But his game really spoke for – and he, he was a stat stuffer too. Like, not only did he give you 25 or 27 points, but he gives you 14 rebounds. He gets four or five steals. I mean, the dude was a – he was like a wiry – he wasn't, like, really built, but he just was wiry, strong. Um, he could score from multiple spots. He wasn't a great shooter, but – he could make a 15-footer, 17-footer. He didn't miss layups. He finished everything. He made free throws. He, and he was just a, he was a great guy because even after, 
you know, he went on from St. John's, they would come over to Walsh and in preseason, most of the NBA guys, Ross Strickland, Tate George, and all those guys, Mark Bryant, they would all come and play, uh, pick up for this. And he was just a really great guy. Talk about guys that could fill the stat sheet. Lawrence Moten could put the ball in the basket for Syracuse. Talk, talk about Lawrence for a second. Yeah, Lawrence, we had a conversation the other day about uh, the quarantine and not being him not being able to. He still plays. Like, that guy still plays. No, seriously? In his 40s? Yeah, he does. He still plays. He still plays. And his daughter is really, really good. So, um, he's another guy. Just really, really not big, not too tall. He had some size, but he could rebound it. He could pass it. And he could flat out score. Like, you really couldn't stop him from scoring. He, did, he had a really weird shot, but you couldn't leave him open. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then if he missed it, he, he, he was kind of like Rodney. He could go get his own rebound. All right, so so in this rivalry, Tom and I want to ask you kind of what was the most difficult defeat? And to me, I mean, t- tell me if I'm wrong, back to the Syracuse rivalry, semifinals, 1992 Big East tournament, you guys lose 70 to 66. And when the game was tied at 66, unfortunately, you had a turnover. Syracuse goes the length of the court for basically the game winner. But was that the most difficult defeat in the rivalry? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> It was a turnover. It wasn't the most difficult in the rivalry. Um, my most difficult loss in my career was Western Kentucky. That was that was the mo- I, because I believe I didn't do enough. I didn't do enough uh, to help us. And I, I think I, we kind of I, I could say for me, I think we were looking at the Florida State game and, and not paying enough attention to detail with that group um, because Western Kentucky was solid. And they just caught us, and they just like they never took their feet off the gas. Like you know what I mean? Like once we realized we were in a dogfight, sometimes you could get behind on the card, and then you know you can lose. Well, let me save this from Michael with one him talking <laughs> about all these great Big East players and these losses, and let's bring it back to Brian and some excitement here. We've also had. <laughs> some satisfying victories in it during your time there in these rivalries. Now I already mentioned a 30 point blowout in the title game against Syracuse. There was a blowout of St. John's to win the outright big East regular East. season yep. title. What stands out to you as your greatest rivalry win? I think you, I think you hit it. That St. John's just definitive outright win of the big East. Uh, we won regular season and we won the, the tournament that year, which is which was you know kind of unheard of at the time because the Big East was so tough. I think that that was kind of one one of the most that was one of the biggest years for my career at Seton Hall to kind of be on a part of that and win it. You know, having to get that win in the Meadowlands against St. John's and then going on into the tournament. Now, um, now, now I was in that crowd. We charged the court again that year. That yes, was that great. Yeah. Yep. And I remember the, the star ledger cover had had the shorts guy, the one guy that would walk around shorts all season with the big Seton yeah. Hall banner up, man. It was those were great times. So Tommy that makes was... fun of the fans of Creighton for rushing the court at the end of this yeah, season, but, but yeah, he's did. rushing the court now, huh, Tom? Come on. You know that was a memorable night too, uh, Tom. That was a memorable night because you know that was the night I think I think Jerry scored his thousand point. I think Terry uh, he may have went over that night too, over that 2000 point mark. Um, so that was just, it was just memorable. And then also, you know, you, we got Dow Chris got to start and yes, play a lot. Yes. In it. 
he got to start that night, which, you know, sometimes when you go to school and, and you want to play, you sacrifice your, you know, a lot for your teammates, you know. So that, it was just great to see Dallas Chris play. Jimmy Dixon, Jimmy Dixon, like, played well. So it was good to see that, be a part of that. All right, Brian, I want to move on to leadership, and I want to go back to a game during the 1991-92 season uh, mm -hmm. after a 77-64 to win over then 24th-ranked UConn. Gordon mm -hmm. Winchester was quoted as saying the following, Brian wasn't playing his game earlier in the year. He wasn't mm -hmm. playing on instinct. He was always looking over his shoulder, waiting to see if he was going to be yelled at or pulled out of the game. But, but on mm -hmm. that afternoon, you scored 18 points, 12 in the second half, a crazy crowd of 20,000 plus the largest ever to watch a college basketball game at the burn at that point in time. And this mm -hmm. is also the very next game after you hit that buzzer beater versus Georgetown four days, four days earlier. So would you define this moment as your like coming out party as the leader at point guard for this team? I think so. Because that night, remember Gordon Winchester was my roommate and he had that conversation with me that night. So he's like my big brother. And he kind of just said to me, like, listen, it's, it's time for you to kind of be who you are. Uh, you know, block that out. You know, PJ's a screamer. That's who he is. Um, you just got to kind of block that out and just be the guy that we know you are. You know, so, you know, Gordon had that conversation with me that night. And I just kind of took it from there as PJ's going to be who he is and in order for us to really accomplish some of the things that we need to accomplish, I need to give them everything that I have to give them. So I just, you know, from that moment forward, it just, it was kind of like I put the blinders on and put the earplugs in and <laughs> just kind of went to work. So, so now I'm going to try to piece together uh, the puzzle here and, and kind of assume a couple things. So correct me if I'm wrong, but what I find that was interesting about that whole storyline is you didn't get the start that day. You were held mm -hmm. out of the starting lineup for breaking a team rule. So is Gordon having the conversation to kind of get your head back on straight? Because with the press, PJ nor yourself would reveal what the infraction was, you know, in right. the post-game article. So what was the reason why PJ kept you out of the, the starting lineup? Oh, you want to go deep. So there, was, <laughs> there, was a, uh, there was an incident that took place in the dorms with, with, with a student calling me a racial slur and I popped the guy. I went, I ran and I popped the guy. So that he needed, you know, to do something on my end to, you know, as a team infraction. Um, so that's what, that's kind of what they did at the time. And, uh, you know, that night, that was, that was kind of the conversation that, that's what prompted the conversation with Gordon and myself. He was like, you can't, you know, you can't be doing that. I know, you know, you're too valuable to us. Um, and so, you know, it was a couple of days that transpired before the Connecticut game. And then, so that's, that's what the infraction was. Now, speaking of PJ, we love getting former players to give us some insight on the man as the coach and whatnot. And uh -huh. these always seem to start at what PJ would yell at the players. Like when we had Mark Bryant on, we found out he wasn't Mark Bryant. He was blankety blank double O. Yeah. When Adrian Griffin was on, we found out he was FNAG. So yeah. what was your relationship like with PJ as it developed over time? And what was your name? I was, I was FN baby. <laughs> they, they called me baby because I was the youngest on the team. So I was FN baby. 
<laughs> that's what I want. I was effing baby. So, Ooh. and then what happened is like a lot of people feel like I was kind of his whipping boy because, you know, he. But it was because I had the ball all the time, so he was always looking at me and yelling. Um, so it was at first it was really tumultuous and rocky because it's not that I wasn't using it. Like my father yelled at me all the time, but it just kind of it made me uneasy because I always wanted to kind of do what the coach asks of you. So that's where we kind of conflicted. I wanted to make sure that I was always doing what he asked of me because that's how I was taught. Um, and that's how I was brought up in, you know, elementary school and high school, junior high school. You know, you, what the coach says is that's what you got to give the coach what he wants. So I, it was it was a time where I just really couldn't figure out what the hell he wanted. Like, <laughs> do you want me to score? Do you want me to, like, like what do, you want, do you want me to go? Like, so we might go, like, go back door or what? Like, you know what I mean? Like, the shot clock's running down. I can break this guy down. You know what I mean? So that that's kind of where we kind of bumped heads at with that part. Um, and then I would do, like, you know, I would do stupid stuff, like, because the only thing I control, like, I would I would make the team get in trouble sometimes. Like, but like, you know what? PJ's being a jerk. I'm not going to class today. So, <laughs> so then the guys have to get up, like, Bing, what you doing? Like, you, I'm like, man, that's all I can control. I can't control anything else. You know what I mean? So... So that was the part of like our love hate relationship. You know, he would be a jerk sometimes, and then I would be a jerk back. That was my way of being a jerk back. And Robin, I drove Robin Cunningham crazy. You know, because she's a sweetheart. And I was just, I was just young and immature, and that's what I was doing. But at the same time, you know, I was never disrespectful. I was never disrespectful. I always, you know, did what I was supposed to do for him. And you know, he was just one of those guys yelling was his thing, having his best. You know, I can tease him now. I see him now. I always talk about the best. So. Sweater vest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, made him famous. Like, oh, yeah. oh man, like, I'm gonna put on a sweater vest. Like, I gotta compose yeah, myself here. <laughs> Nike's probably giving him money to do it. Like, there <laughs> you go. Okay, but so as we were talking with Adrian Griffin a few weeks ago. <laughs> He said as he got older and as he got into his professional career, he seemed to understand a little bit better what PJ was trying to express to him. Were there any yeah. things that you learned from him that you incorporated into your coaching style when you got there? A, a, a lot, actually, a lot. You know, I learned a lot from my high school coach, John Costalda, but uh, with PJ, I definitely learned a lot in, in Cause the one thing you know, people always just they just say crazy stuff. Like he didn't like black kids. I was like, like, come on, man. Like you really th that's that's not who he is. Like don't do that. Cause you know I got I got called when uh, the thing happened with him is pretty well. The one thing I can say is that PJ's not that kind of guy. So um, I learned when when I started coaching is about the importance of the academic piece and and making you guys a team like. He kept us together all the time. And like we, we alluded to my senior year not having a teammate as a roommate. Uh, he made sure that we were together all the time and everybody was on the same page. If one guy did something, it affected everybody. And and that and I learned that moving, even if it was a bone. And yeah, there were tons of incidents that happened amongst our team. And he kept it amongst our team. You know, we're talking 30 years. No one knew what that infraction was. But that's just who we were, you know, and that's how we did. He just said, well, listen, we're going to handle it internally. And he did. He was they were all behind me and, you know, all the coaching staff, every teammate we met. Um, 
And that's some of the things that I learned that he made sure that we stayed together and that it was about us. It was kind of like us against the world when it came to playing against teams. And that's why we fought for each other so hard. So I, I got, I, I learned a lot in that regard when I started coaching about, you know, being accountable, being accountable for not just yourself, who you represent, your teammates and being there for them. All right, Brian, last transition of topics. We're going to talk about the NCAA tournament. Okay. 1990 to 1991, Sweet 16 victory over Arizona, 81 to 77. We normally ask most former players about how good the UNLV team was the next game, but Arizona was pretty damn good themselves. Six yes. future NBA players, yes. Chris Mills, Sean Rooks, they were 28 and seven, first place in the, the Pac-10 back then, not the Pac-12, right? And yeah. on that day, you got the bulk of the minutes over Oliver Taylor. You played 25. He only played mm -hmm. 19. Remember, mm -hmm. you're a freshman. Five points, six assists, three boards, two steals. You throw in a block as well. How satisfying was it to make such a strong contribution in a big moment as a freshman? First of all, just that's that, that's that part about Oliver Taylor I'm talking about. He kind of knew that, I, you know, sometimes you could just – you'd be in a better space in certain games. And he understood that and he handled that well. Um, but just be like, you named a couple of future NBA. You talking about Bison Dele was on that team. You know, Brian Williams was on that team. And like the guys that really don't get the credit, like Muhlenbach, those guards for Arizona at the time, those dudes were seasoned. That Matt Othick and Muhlenbach, those two guards were tough. Khalil Reeves was on that team. Um, so they, that was so like that was just like you talking. It might have been, it felt like fifty thousand people at that game because we played in the Kingdom. <laughs> but like you couldn't even hear the ball bounce. Like you know what I mean? Like we we might have had fifteen thousand people at our shoot around. So like this is NCAA basketball at its highest level, and that was just your eyes. I was like a deer in the headlights. Like you you looking around and you're like. You, and you're like, you're in the same bracket with you on LV. So you're like, holy crap. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but you can't think about you LV. You get what I'm saying? You can't think about them. You have, you're facing Arizona. And that was just like one of the, you know, that, that showed me that I kind of had made it to the pinnacle of college basketball. You know, that's the stuff that you think about when you're in high school and you're watching that. And now to be a part of that, my parents to be able to see me play and my friends, the, you know, so that was that's definitely one of the moments in my career that I'll never, ever forget. Never. Now, you've already talked about that second round loss to Western Kentucky in the 92-93 season. Now, we've had mm -hmm. our tourists, Jerry, and we actually even had Coach Hamburger on earlier in this year and they all shared different perspectives of what what went wrong with that game. You mentioned that you guys were looking ahead at, at Florida State potentially. Now, Personally, we would have loved to see your team get a shot at Patino and that Kentucky squad, yeah, led yeah, right. by Jamal Mashburn and Travis Ford. Travis Ford. Mm -hmm. Now, when that draw comes out, were you guys even looking up that ladder? You say, well, we're going to beat these guys. We're going to beat Western Kentucky. You know, Florida State's going to get handled, and then we're going to be in there with Kentucky itself. Were you guys looking ahead I, like that? I think I think that's kind of like what you do personally. Like, we've... Like we're not openly sitting together because we do watch, we did watch the seedings and stuff together, but you don't kind of like, we're not sitting there saying, Oh, we're going to bump them and we're going to knock this team off. Now we don't sit there, but I think individually you kind of look at that bracket and you kind of, you know, start kind of looking at teams like, but 
there's a team like Western Kentucky that we really didn't, we didn't really get to see a lot of. So we, you know, as prepared as we were, you know, Bruce Hamburger, like I said, is a phenomenal scout guy. Um, you sometimes, you know, teams just catch you, you know, and they just got it going. And when teams, some teams get it going, it gives them confidence, you know. And you know that year we were probably ranked higher than we've ever been ranked. Uh, I think we maybe third or fourth in the country. We had a really high seed. I think we became the first bracket buster. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, you got something there, Brian. You, you guys were the hottest team in the country coming into the tournament. That, that's right. That's coming off the heels of blowing out Syracuse by thirty in the Big East finals. You guys were up to sixth in the country. You got to be thinking Final Four at that time. No? Right, right. So that's that's where our mindset was. You know, sometimes I think when everybody gets up for you, like, and that's something that I learned through years and years, when you're at that level and, you know, you're, you're supposed, like you said, we were rolling teams, you become the hunted. You get what I'm saying? So people play above where they are because of you. And if you're not really pushing yourself to get to where you need to get so that you maintain that, teams will catch you. Teams, And it happens. Now you see bracket busters all the time. You know, I always say that we were the first bracket busters, and I take the brother. Well, you you certainly busted my bracket that year. I think I had a, I think I had Seton Hall beating uh, UNC in a uh, rematch of that game from the Meadowlands yeah, yeah, that yeah. year. Yeah, yeah. So all that stuff comes into mind, like when you individually looking at the brackets, you're saying, "Man, yeah, it's a chance for us to get we can get UNC back." You know, you just kind of whispering those things to yourself. So, um, yeah, that was that was. Like that haunts me to this day. Brian, you keep on it. saying that you put it on yourself, but that, that's a loaded team. You know, our, our tourists, Terry, Jerry. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's multiple stars on that team that could contribute and step up in that moment. Why do you feel like this was on your shoulders? Because, uh, you know, I, one, I'm the point guard. You know, I kind of got to, you know, you got to kind of take control of those things when we're not hitting shots, we're not getting what we want. I think you got to kind of step up and make sure we get those things. We get those shots that we need to get. We make sure we get those defensive stops. You know, I think a lot of times we didn't get those defensive stops that we should have gotten. So, you know, just that's just being a part of that team and knowing who I was. That's why I take the brunt of that uh, as being kind of like the leader of that team from the point guard position. Like you said, we were loaded. Um, other guys could have done some different things. But, you know, if we, if we could go back, there would probably be a different outcome. I know that. But <laughs> well, yeah, that's what makes, that's I- what makes history history. 99 out of 100 times, you're not losing that game. We get that. Exactly, exactly. All right, what, one more game, all right? So we're going to go to 91-92, Sweet 16 versus Duke. Duke of, uh, wins 81-69. to I, I saved this one for last because there's a little bit of controversy here. Duke ends up going on to win the national title. The very next game, Leitner's hitting that memorable shot versus Kentucky in overtime. So there's no shame in losing to the back-to-back national tournament champions. But when we had Jerry Walker on, he took PJ to task a little bit on this game. He he believed that PJ got caught up in the media hype of playing Danny versus Bobby for whatever reason. Now you're listed at six four. Bobby, if he's lucky, is is a six foot uh, in the box score. And Jerry's telling me that he's giving coaching advice to mix it up and clear things out for you to post Bobby up. Right. And, but, but coach wouldn't listen to him. But Jerry's like, oh, PJ wouldn't listen to me. He's like, coach says we're sticking with our system. That's what's got us here. And that's the way we're going to play it out. If PJ had taken Jerry's advice and let you go to work on Bobby one-on-one, could the outcome of that game change? 
I believe it, it would have definitely made a difference. They would have had to make an adjustment to that. I think sometimes we can get caught up with one in, in the media. I think, you know, everybody, you know, the brothers are playing against each other. The little sister, they had her on the prompter with the, you know, the half seat hall jacket, jacket, half Duke jacket, which is which was great to see. I think we got to see it, but now let's go win a basketball game. And I think every game is different. And I think that, you know, sometimes you could get caught, you know, as, from a coaching perspective, you know, believing in playing one way. And I think that when you have an advantage, which is a size advantage, and I could play the post. So I could post him up. I could have posted. And it, it could have been within the flow of the game if we just ran it just to create, to make them do something different. I could We could have taken advantage of that size advantage, I believe. Um, and But he chose not to. And that was probably the, the least amount of minutes I played in the tournament against that team. So, so that's where I want to go next. Regardless of offensive philosophy, I want to set the record straight. I think the narrative sometimes get, gets lost over the years. Coach right. Hamburger was on, and he thought you were in foul trouble. And so when we, when we were bringing up, like, talking about strategy, and, I, and I, we didn't have the heart to tell him, Brian, you didn't have one foul in that game. No, so not one foul. Not one. Not one. Burger goes, oh, Brian was definitely in foul trouble. That's why we went more with Danny. I'm like, uh, okay, Coach, yeah, sure, no problem. Uh, <laughs> Stop it, Brian. Coach Hamburger is a friend of the program. Stop it, Michael. Right. So, so here's my question, though. How, how frustrating it was only to log 25 minutes when in the previous two games – you're logging 34 and 37 minutes versus LaSalle and Missouri, respectively. It's very disheartening. And, uh, you know, I, I think when you look at that, you know, you can, it's kind of the, you know, the tail of the tape. Uh, you know, it's 30 years ago, but it still stings because that's like a home game for us. That's Philadelphia. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? That was like a home game for us. So I'm not sure what the mindset is about that, but. Again, that's when it goes back to, you know, what is the coach thinking? You know, and, and you see, if, if they ever show pictures on the bench, I'm sitting there looking at them like, let's go. Like, get me in there. And Jerry, Jerry's not lying when he said that. Like, Jerry's like, coach, like, come on. We need, let's, we need you know, we need Cave in there. Like, come on, coach. Like, what's going on? Because, I mean, even the first play of the game, the size difference showed, you know, and I, could, I, can, I can say it now because, you know, I got pulled out like two plays after that, early in the game. Right off the tip, we know that Duke overplays everything. We're, we're prepared. So my thing is, if you're going to overplay everything, that that creates driving lanes. So the first play of the game, I just drove it and scored it over Bobby. Just drove it. Just because of size, you could just, I could get in the lane. Um, and it became, you know, don't start the personal stuff. And I'm like, it's not personal. We want to win. Yeah, we, 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 we don't want to make it a Danny Bobby thing, but right, you know, it's not and, and, and Bobby's a great Bobby's a great player, but we really thought that you had an opportunity to kind of create a moment in moment, which you right. kind of could rise to the occasion and take Bobby to task. I, I really do agree with Jerry on this one. Right, I do. Well, you know, I agree. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, Brian, not 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 to belabor this point a little bit. But were they trying to put Danny in in a position that he wasn't comfortable with? I mean. Danny coming out of high school was a two, if I'm not mistaken. And now they're trying to have him back you up as the one. Are they trying to make him into, you know, Bobby 2.0 at that point? Uh, maybe. Uh, maybe. I believe so. I just think that, you know, you gotta, I believe so. I'm not sure, you know, what their process was. But, you know, Danny was comfortable, though. Danny's a skilled player. Danny's, that's, man, Danny's my guy. He's, he's my guy. And uh, he did something for me that was 
like most people won't understand. You know, and I won't. Sh- that's the one thing I'm not going to share. But, <laughs> yeah, um, but I just think, you know, like you said, they they may have tried to make Danny into a one because of his brother. And Danny was a really skilled player. Like he could really score it and shoot it. But, you know, and like I said, Danny kind of experienced that too. You know, should I, should I look to score? Should I, should I shoot? You know, I, you get what I'm saying? So it was kind of difficult playing for PJ. PJ was a difficult coach to play for um, in regards to certain things like that. You know, he wanted what he wanted, but he kind of left you in limbo with it. And you didn't realize it until he yelled about it. Like, you get what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> he wasn't like the, the sit-down guy, I need you to do this and do that. That was kind of more Coach Hamburger, Coach Coach Brown, Coach Sell. Um, PJ was just kind of like, you knew you did something wrong because he's yelling. Like, you get what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> not, not a lot of positive reinforcement no. is what you're saying. Right, huh? right, right. But then the shot clock's running down. You can hear him, you can hear him yell to me, take him, baby. I'm like, now you want me to go? Like, it's four seconds left. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I remember that against Villanova. Like, I was in front of the bench. They swung the ball to me. Shot clock's running down. He's just like, take him, baby. And I'm like, huh? Like, what? <laughs> like, you so I'm like, okay. Yeah. Well, going into your senior year, you got into the tournament one last time. And at that point, you became one of the first two guys to make the tournament at Seton Hall in all your four years. You and Arturis, obviously, you end up losing that yep. game to uh, Michigan State, if I'm not mistaken. You're correct. You move on to a professional career. You were invited to the Indiana Pacers rookie camp. You were drafted fifth overall in the CBA draft that year. You played two seasons with the Fort Wayne Fury and the Grand Rapid Mackers. And then you played one season in Australia in the NBL with the Sydney Kings. Now, during your time there, you got to see former Seton Hall star Andrew Gaze firsthand. That was at the height of his powers. Now, He had cups of coffee in the NBA, even managing to be a member of the Spurs NBA title team in 99. But mm-hmm. what was he like at the peak of his performance? That, he's just such a cerebral player. Like, because, you know, most people talk about his shooting, which is one thing, but he did so much more. He was actually probably a more pivotal in me getting over to Australia than most, you know, because of the relationship with Seton Hall and things like that. And he played for Melbourne at the time, but that dude was just, he was just incredible. Like, I could see how that 89 team went to the finals. Like, I can see, like, when you when you get to see guys up close like that and the other things that they do besides just his shooting, the one his size, like, I didn't realize he was that big. Like, you know, <laughs> his size-wise, but he's just such a cerebral guy. And, it, and, you know, I was really appreciative of him coming over and we're having a conversation about, you know, playing over there and things like that. Um, but, yeah, he was just – his shooting is one thing, but the other things that he did as well uh, over there was incredible too. So Now, when you were done with your playing days, you got into coaching a little bit. So mm-hmm. you got six seasons as assistant coach at Trenton High School, and then you finally mm-hmm. got a shot to be that man in the front seat, you know, right, right, right. at Conwell Egan High School. Now, the first season didn't go probably as successfully as you wanted, 9-16, and 16, but you were mm-hmm. in the Philadelphia Catholic League, which has been long recognized as one of the finest leagues in Pennsylvania. 
Unfortunately, the skill the school decided to go in a different direction after only one season. Do you have a desire to get back into coaching and pursue another head coaching opportunity at this point? I definitely would. I definitely would. More so on the side of just kind of reaching and, and helping some of these young men around here. Uh, that's really what my passion is. That's what coaching was for us. Even when I was at Trenton Central with Greg Grant, that was our main purpose. Just kind of, this is the city that we grew up in, just kind of letting those kids get an opportunity to kind of see what being a part of a real program is like. Um, so I brought my experiences with me. Greg brought his experiences. So I definitely would love to get back into coaching. My kids are a little older now. And so that gives me an opportunity to do a little bit more. I'm definitely looking to kind of, you know, when things kind of clear the air a little bit. I've had offers before, um, but I guess it's just timing. So I'm definitely uh, interested in coaching again. Brian, when they let you go, you were quoted as saying, I was trying to build the program up to make sure that we were steadily improving. Did it come as a surprise that they didn't give you more time to kind of build it up and do what you wanted to do? Well, definitely, definitely came as a surprise. Because uh, because sometimes, you know, you're not sure what an institution really wants. And that school is kind of on the outskirts of uh, Philadelphia, which is a suburban school. So, you know, in order to compete with that Philly influx of players and those schools that are in Philly, I had to kind of reach back across the water to New Jersey to start building the middle school program. And that's what I was trying to tell them. We have to build that that seventh and eighth grade group so that now you start to have players. And that's what I was trying to do. So, you know, they decided they wanted to go in a different direction. You know, what can you do? That's their institution. No hard feelings. I enjoyed the opportunity. I learned a lot from it. So, you know, moving forward with whatever my next, you know, uh, project will be, that's, that's always going to be my focus is building a program where you kind of have an influx of players constantly coming in. Well, speaking of development and building programs, you've gotten in that, you've gone in that direction in your career. You've got G Grant 94 Academic Sports Academy. You started up the Victory Sports Pro-Am Summer Basketball League. And more recently, you are involved in the young adult pop-up basketball skills and drills training tournaments with events that kind of run all throughout the summer in, in many areas of the city. This was interesting to me. In a recent Facebook post, your pastor, David A. Cox, shared a memory from your first clinic. And in that original post, you shared that four hours prior to this event, your mother, unfortunately, had passed away. And then you mm -hmm. continued to write, couldn't bring myself to cancel this clinic and let those kids down. Just heard her voice making the same declaration when my father passed in 92, get up and go finish what you started. Can you take a moment and talk about the importance of these clinics and the inspiration behind your mother's words? Well, the, the clinics, I, we put the clinics on one. It's to give, you know, some of the inner city kids an opportunity to have the, the training and uh, basketball camp experience kind of brought to them. Because most of them can't really afford to go to like your university clinics or, your, or get invited to the big time camp. So it gives us an opportunity to, get, to reach back and grab those young kids. One, because of the violence in my city, the gang violence and um, the kids don't feel safe going to different parts of the city. So I kind of, we kind of bring it to, uh, we have eight parks in the city, eight basketball courts in the city that we just bring it to them for two or three hours, give them that experience. And which was kind of inspired by my mother. You know, she, she was saying to me like, back in 92, when my father passed, that was the year I got hurt too. I had never been injured before. Um, so I was just kind of like, let me stay at home. I was honestly, actually considering not going back to school because she was by herself. And, you know, my brother was had his family and my sister was in New York. So I was kind of like, you know, I was just kind of sitting around 
you know, she said she came down the stairs one day and was kind of like, well, what, what you got going on? What are you doing? You know, you're not rehabbing. You need to get your tail back to school and rehab. So my mother was funny in that way. It's kind of like the way she would put it to you. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to help you, you know, around the house and maybe, you know, knock up. She said, no, 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 no. I'm the adult. I'm a grown woman. Like, I'm good. You can't help me. You're 19 years old. So you get your tail back if your father was here, go back to school and uh, finish what you started. So that's kind of where that came from. So unfortunately, that July 9th of 2018, she was in long-term care at the time. You know, I took care of her for 13 years, but she was in long-term care. And uh, so that was my first year planning these pop-up clinics for these kids in the city because violence had got out of control. They, they had problems at the summer leagues. The kids, they were like canceling everything. So we said, we decided, myself and a couple of friends of mine, let's, let's do something for them, keep them safe and get them out there. So that morning I got the call around 4 a.m., about 4.30, my brother called me, told me she had passed, but that was the first morning when we were supposed to do the clinics. So I'm sitting here, me and my daughter were crying. I'm like, uh, do I cancel this? And then I just, then I kind of thought back to that moment and I said, well, let's, you know what? Let me go handle this and I can take care of that after that. So it kind of went dormant after that because I was kind of mourning. And then we kind of brought them back full. That next spring, we brought them back. And, you know, the kids look forward to it every year. That's how that's how it goes with the Hoop Skills Elite pop-up. They're, they're free for the kids. So we're always taking donations and things like that. And I like to give them shirts and send them away with gifts, feed them. Some of the kids don't, you know, make sure that they eat and stuff like that. So that's where we are with that. Right now, before we let our guests leave, we make them walk the plank. We're going to ask you five rapid fire questions. We're wanting five rapid fire answers back. Don't think too long on the answer, Brian. No, Just no, give us no. the first thing that pops into your head. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Let's go. Okay. Question number one, most points scored in any game at any level. High school, 49, Elizabeth High School Summer League. Which team was your biggest arch rival? Georgetown. Toughest road environment? UConn. Toughest opposing player you've ever played against? Jimmy Jackson, hands down. Best SHU player you've ever seen play? Whoo, wow. Terry DeHair. <laughs> All right, bonus question. I'm gonna, I'm gonna mix it up today. I'm gonna go trivia question for the bonus question. If you were paying attention earlier, Tom gave you a couple of the answers. Name the three Seton Hall Pirates who have played in four NCAA tournaments. Myself, Arturis. God, I don't know the third one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tom, you win the bet. He couldn't fit, he couldn't get Mike Enzi. Uh, it was Mike Enzi who just recently Mike graduated. Enzi, that's right. Mike Enzi just did it. Yeah, he just did it. <laughs> I should have known that. Congratulations, Brian. You have walked the plank. Now, Brian, let me ask you. You said you scored 49 in, against Elizabeth in Elizabeth High School uh, Summer League. Yeah, high school. Was Luther Red on that other side? Yeah, he was over there. <laughs> he was over there. That was a really good summer league in high school that we played in. That was kind of like a tune-up for us. We would come up north and play, so it was really good. Pretty, well, pretty crazy to think about that last question, though, right? You got a, you got three guys, and on that list, there's no Terry, there's no Jerry, no, there's no, no. There's no Angel Delgado, hey, no, no Miles Powell because they didn't play this past year with the pandemic. So oh, that's, that's horrible, man. Yeah, oh, man. yeah, I know it's some crazy stuff, but that's a pretty exclusive list to be on. Looking back through at all these all these years of Seton Hall Pirate history, huh? 
I love it. I love it. I'll never get that question wrong again now. <laughs> <laughs> well, ho hopefully we're going to add a lot more guys to that list yeah, in a few years, right? Yeah. So, Brian, we can't thank you enough for spending some time with us today. We really appreciate you being so open and honest, man. We, we've had a blast here with you. Oh, man, I enjoyed this so much, man. I appreciate it. Appreciate oh, thank you, Brian. It. Brian Caver, everybody. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players, Mark Bryant, Danny Calandrillo, Adrian Griffin, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkoharski, I am Mike Dizzy Deziri, and you have been listening to Left Coast Pirates. Left Coast Pirates.